Welcome to Gears of Progress, a perfect place to learn about research in rehab engineering and assistive tech. As usual, I'm your host, Sasha, a postdoc at the University of Washington, and this is a special episode number one. So welcome to Gears of Progress. Um, this is a special episode today on Resna's guidelines and priorities for assistive technology and rehabilitation engineering research. And uh, to talk about that, um, in my studio, we have uh, Maureen Linden, an executive director of the Center of Inclusive Design at Georgia Tech, and also... Um, Resna's past president. And for those of you that don't know, Resna is a rehabilitation engineering and assistive technology society of North America. And I think a perfect introduction to that would be to ask Maureen uh, to tell us more about what Resna is, what it stands for, what its goals and visions are. So, uh, sure. Yes. So, Maureen. <laughs> Thank you. So Resna is um, the original professional society for people who use assistive technology to um, to help them in their lives. So um, as as someone who might be serving people with disabilities, um, you have to have access to technology and know what the technology is that might bridge certain barriers to access. Um, and so we are the professional society. Sometimes we refer to ourselves as the hive mind that helps other other professionals in the field um, move forward uh, in their careers around uh, providing technology. Um, our 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 vision and our uh, goals are to consistently improve the services that are provided with people to people with disabilities by helping people with their professional development and providing educational opportunities for professionals in the field. Um, and there are many facets to the way we go about doing some of those things. We do have educational programs. We also um, support standards development around technology to make sure it has certain performance parameters, and we have a professional specialty group, so we have a credentialing program so that people can uh, be, be comforted in the fact that they know that their professional has a certain level of base level of knowledge and expertise around assistive technology. That is awesome. Um, so as I mentioned, the goal of this episode is going to be uh, mainly focusing on the guidelines and priorities uh, Resna created to talk uh, or to assist other researchers uh, for creating assistive tech or doing research in rehab engineering. Um, a question I had, how did you decide on the guidelines? Like, what was the process of developing them? If, if you can talk about that. I, I certainly can. I was actually part of the research committee when this was put together. Um, and so I remember very specifically, we thought, okay, let's put together just like our research sponsors put together sort of a five-year plan uh, or a five-year priority document. Let's put together a document that lists out what we think the priority areas of research that will be needed were. And we pulled together, we had a couple people sort of leading that effort, but then... 
generated consensus by going back to the professional society and saying among those who are doing research, you know, what does, what does this look like? Is this what you would put down? Are there changes you would make? So we developed a consensus around those topics. Um, but then once we did that, we went back and said, yeah, but are we really going to be able to predict what happens in the future? And maybe what we actually need to take a look at is guiding people in the best way to perform research in this field. And so the document then became mm-hmm. divided into a part one and part two. And the part one is really, mm-hmm. here are the principles for doing solid research in the area of, of rehabilitation engineering and assistive technology. And then here's where we guess things are going in the future um, and what the priorities mm-hmm. of research were that were needed to move the field forward. Um, and I'm looking back at the document. It's now probably 10 years later, approximately 10 years later. And yes. thinking, oh, I can see where we kind of got it spot on and where we just completely missed. And that's okay. That's good. <laughs> we did our best best guess and we're moving things forward. So. Got it. Uh, so the, the latest version is of, as you said, it's 10 years old uh, or 10 years young. Uh, it's from mm-hmm. 2014. How many iterations have you had so far? I believe this is the third inter- iteration. And now that I'm looking at the document and the document date, I'm thinking we missed an iteration and we probably need to go back and fix it. Um, we were probably hindered by, oh, I don't know, a pandemic. And cert- you know, certainly our, our, our attention shifted and, and we maybe didn't remember that we needed to go update this. But um, it's it's about time probably to do another iteration on this document. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. As, as you mentioned, a five-year plan that was exactly around the pandemic, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you think uh, for Resna um, as a society, as a professional society, it was important to create these guidelines? What, what were the hopes for that you hope to achieve with, uh, with that? So the members of Resna um, are very, very passionate about what they do. Um, they're very, I, I have yet to meet someone at Resna who, who doesn't stay up late at night worrying about how we're going to solve some problems related to, to people with disabilities and their access for the world. And um, what we wanted to do was establish a document that would say, here's here's what research is absolutely needed to move things forward um, that, that our federal sponsors and federal agencies could look at and, and perhaps use to define their own research agendas. That was part of it. Um, the other part was looking at how the field was going to have to grow based on what we saw as technology changes coming. And so knowing that mm-hmm. um, generally speaking, when mainstream technology is released, it, it doesn't incorporate fully Uh, accessible options um, that that we needed to try and, and and move that needle along with this technology as it was being developed. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Um, okay. Yes, absolutely. That does. Um, so going into the guidelines themselves, uh, as you mentioned, the first part focuses on how mm-hmm. research should be approached uh, mm-hmm. when we're talking about creating technologies uh, or uh, providing rehab engineering for individuals with disabilities. The first one was user involvement, and I loved it that it's the first point (laughs) because I feel like us as researchers, oftentimes we completely miss the mark of 
getting the end user involved. Uh-huh. Uh, we get so excited about designing some sort of a solution uh-huh. that we think is appropriate uh, mm-hmm. without really understanding is it appropriate for the user we're designing it for. How do you think... How can... <laughs> what do you think are the best ways to kind of bridge that gap for researchers around the world that do research in rehab engineering and assistive tech? Um what is a way of really increasing that user involvement and um yeah. yeah how can we educate the researchers on that yeah so you know what uh, in my opinion the long term solution to that is to get people with disabilities in the field and actually involved in the research from the professional perspective rather than going to them as, oh, you're the end user. If we could encourage people with disabilities to go into the field of rehabilitation engineering, that would be tremendous. Um, And I think there's some barriers to that, and that's not going to be an immediate solution. So in the intermediate area, um, it's really about recognizing that the people who live the experience are really the people who are experts on what their barriers are and what solutions actually might work for them. Um, I, I recall uh, uh, a, co- a colleague of mine whose who's, um, uh, take on speech-language uh, augmentative communication devices is that the client or the end user is always going to pick the solution of least resistance. So if there's this gigantic learning curve, mm-hmm. they're less likely to pick up that device than if, you know, you can just say to someone, for example, who has no speech, you know, look, look on, look to my left hand. If the answer is yes, look to my right hand. If the answer is no, that's way easier, right? Because mm-hmm. you already know how to look, as opposed to um, learning how to use an augmentative communication device and program it so that it has the the um, the vocabulary available in whatever situation you need. Right now, I'm not trying to mm-hmm. um, diminish the impact of augmentative communication devices. I'm just saying that I can imagine a very complicated system, but if that learning curve is to solve any problem, but if that learning curve is too steep, the end user is not going to climb it because they're going to find a workaround that works better in their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned a really great point, and it's the uh, instead of focusing on t- coming to uh, individuals with disabilities as kind of like you're the end user of whatever Mm-hmm. solution I'm creating mm-hmm. as an engineer or some other type of researcher, uh, it's important to have them kind of on the other side of research where they are the creators of the of the solutions. How are, are there efforts out there um, to yeah. bridge that gap and... Uh, <laughs> What what efforts are you familiar with? Yeah, so there is a whole um, uh, methodology of research which is referred to as participatory action research. And the primary sponsors mm-hmm. of funding on research for people with disabilities 
uh, embrace it, um, encourage it in their in the grants that they award. Um, wherein the people with the disabilities are the people who are helping you uh, ask the research question in the first place. They're the people who are helping you decide what methodology is appropriate, um, what to what burden is too big of a burden on the research subject, the person who's actually participating in the experiment, mm-hmm. um, and and then helping you really interpret what the results of the data are and what they mean. So if you're doing uh, qualitative research on a, um, so for example, we recently did qualitative research on people with disabilities involved in the gig economy, the app-based economy, um, you know, Uber mm-hmm. drivers and that sort of thing. Um Really having a person with a disability, one of our research subjects, in some way involved in helping us interpret what we think the results of that qualitative analysis were, to explain it from the perspective of somebody who's actually living that experience is in the best Mm -hmm. interest of everybody. Um, Because we can look at things and come up with reasons why this was the way it was, but until we actually live the experience, we're probably missing something about it. So to have have them involved at every stage of the research is the best way to go about research. It it, there are some barriers to that process, but but Mm -hmm. as we move forward, we can we can try and overcome those barriers. Absolutely. Um, The second point of the first part of the Resonance guidelines and priorities is the universal design approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you speak uh, a little bit about that? Because it does come universal design approach does not only come up in part one, it comes up in uh, part two of the what uh, research we're kind of hoping sure. to see in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. So universal design um, is the idea that the uh, te- whatever technology you're developing or whatever environment you're designing should be designed so that the vast majority or the largest section of people can use it. So, so in mm-hmm. the design parameter, you should consider um, the needs of people who uh, are at the kind of ends of those spectrums where they, they're not ambulating the way we are. They're maybe using a wheelchair or a walking aid, um, or they don't have the vision that we have, or they don't have the hand function we have. And if we can, if we can encourage things to be built accessible, um, or more accessible, built universally designed. That's a better outcome than having to go back and retrofit or find the technology that Mm -hmm. bridges whatever barriers that environment or device uh, creates in the first place. Um, So so it would be better if we could um, convince educational programs who, who train designers and engineers to build devices or architects to to you know, create environments to make them accessible mm-hmm. to begin with. And that's the idea behind yeah. that. Yeah. So we, we we shouldn't come up with a, a technology that solves a problem for for one segment of population and creates a problem for another segment of population. Um, one of the best examples of that I can think of is um, curb cuts. Curb cuts solve a problem for people who have mobility limitations. They create a different problem for people with vision impairments. But it's, at the moment, the best solution we've got. Right? Mm -hmm. So you have to kind of think through as you're changing things as to what the impacts are on all, all sets of populations. 
Absolutely. Uh-huh. Um, another thing I was thinking about in terms of universal design is that um, a lot of the things that we that have been added retrospectively um, as kind of like the accessibility features, for example, for our phones, they're at the end of the day, they're not only useful for individuals with disabilities. They have been used, you know, like text-to-speech recognition, all of that, Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. speech-to-text recognition Mm -hmm. have been widely used for uh, people uh, without disabilities. And I think this is the beauty of universal design approach is that it is, um, the, the goal is to kind of serve the everyone mm-hmm. uh, collectively as a whole and mm-hmm. uh, try to foresee a lot of potential, um, not necessarily problems, but uh, just kind of, just kind of op- potential obstacles that, you know, this, this design can, um, can help eliminate, um, yeah, which is amazing. That's a great example. Because the reason that's a great example is because voice input technology was originally designed for people with disabilities. And it was so expensive when it came out. But when the medical system realized doctors could dictate their notes into it and not need somebody to transcribe the voice or lawyers, and there became a market that was outside of people with disabilities, then the economies of scale kicked in and the price came down. And now Mm -hmm. you talk to voice input technology when you call anybody and they say, you know, tell us why you've called. (laughs) So, yeah, it's just amazing how that that took off. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Another point on the first part of the resonance guidelines is achievable translational goals. And um, translation comes up later in, in that document as well. I feel like... In research, that's one of the biggest pitfalls of most of development that is performed in research. It's this lack of science translation beyond the walls of your research environment. Mm-hmm. In, in your in your view, how do we increase science translation? How do we encourage? Uh, is there a ways that Perhaps Resna uh, encourages science translation when it comes to uh, research in rehab engineering and assistive tech. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think Resna's role in that is pretty um, pretty broad because it brings together um, the people who do research in the field with the clinicians who actually serve the clients, and so. Within our educational offerings, you'll sometimes see researchers come and present the findings of their research and talk a bit about the the implications to the daily lives of people with disabilities. Um, I think the hope is the clinicians can translate that into, oh, that means I need to do this. Um, but in my view, the best research is done when you've got the clinician involved because they can help you with the... Mm-hmm. Okay, it doesn't matter if um, you can give this person one more inch of reach, for example. That's not Mm -hmm. a clinically significant outcome. You have to change it by this much to make it actually mean something um, in terms of access to the environment. 
that was probably not a great example, but that's the idea. So if you could bring <laughs> the clinicians into the research project as well as the people with the disabilities themselves and have this cross-disciplinary team, I think that is the best way to have knowledge translation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. D- diverse environments uh, is something I've been part of for all the time that I've been doing research in the area and the kind of projects that come out of it are definitely, uh, they're incredible. Uh, there, there's so much value in always having a different set of opinions to either challenge or support whatever you're doing. Um, there was one point that I really f- felt like it resonated with me in in the guidelines, and it was that oftentimes we find that the medical model is very inflexible um, when it comes to science translation or science acceptance. Uh, beyond trying to encourage clinicians to kind of join forces with us in research endeavors, um, most of the time, it's they, they're already very open-minded and ready mm-hmm. to accept new changes, <laughs> clinicians. Uh-huh. What are your thoughts on how can we make the medical model more flexible, more accepting of uh, new changes and whatever kind of comes out in, in the latest research? <laughs> oh, so unfortunately, in my opinion, the medical model is designed largely around the general population and pharmaceutical intervention. And the mm-hmm. level of evidence that they require is, is, is that level is not necessarily mm-hmm. achievable with a population of people who don't have homogenous function. So, you know, at one point I know in, within the medical model, there was a study that said this wheelchair cushion prevents pressure ulcers in people who have spinal cord injury. The literature, the study showed that scientifically and the medical model policymakers said, yes, we will therefore provide this wheelchair cushion over others, even though it costs more. But then when they tried mm-hmm. to apply that to another population with a similar functional limitation, people with multiple sclerosis, for example, it wasn't accepted mm-hmm. because this study had been done on people with spinal cord injury. And so some of it to me is educating CMS about the difference between diagnosis and functional limitation. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of it is coming up with new fresh ways to create data and having a dialogue with CMS about what they need in terms of uh, rigorous research to say this is effective. Um, and there have been varying ways to do to talk about doing that. One is to take a look at um, service databases um, so that you have a large amount of data. There's another colleague of mine who wants to look at every every single intervention as a research study. So you have an N of one study that says for this person, this was the outcome. Um, and, and you combine all of the N of one studies. Um, but until we sit down and get the people who got, who make the regulations around what the medical model can do and get them to say, yes, we will accept that. Um, then it becomes very difficult to say this research will actually prove this. It, that wasn't an eloquent way of saying yeah. that, but it, it's a very complicated system. Yeah. 
unfortunately. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I always think, as we were talking about the medical model, I thought another big challenge that we often face when it comes to uh, research translation into the medical field is uh, the issue, the financial issue, the the reimbursement, the the issue with uh, just yeah dealing with insurances. I feel like, um, at least in the areas I've worked with, and um, especially that's a big one in prosthetics and orthotics. That's kind of everyone almost dances around uh, the the you know, the, the this financial uh, models and sometimes it even guides your research, which um, I find it very uh, disheartening at times because I think that uh, staggers the research and uh, it just uh, pushes it potentially into the uh, alleys that, you know, the, that we would not maybe... Uh, would not have taken if right. not for these limitations. Um, this is something that have come up in uh, several past episodes, you know, especially when it comes to uh, mobility aids, uh, reimbursement models, and when we talk about children that grow, you know, uh, where uh, the uh, insurances only cover every five years, which is... Um, I have kids myself. Uh, zero to five mm-hmm. is a very Huge big transition, change. and yeah, I cannot, <laughs> I, I cannot imagine being stuck with you know, I don't know, one pair of shoes for five years or sure. one pair of uh, like onesie sizes for five years. It just doesn't work. So, right, right. <laughs> I think I think yeah, the other thing um, we can do as researchers is is try to show the benefit to providing the next thing. Um, so I have a mm-hmm. research project that has just been funded. So I haven't done any of the research yet. Um, but the idea is looking at, okay, under the medical model, we're allowed to provide the mobility device that makes per- a person functional in their home. What would the cost differential be to make them functional in a work environment or functional in the community in some other way? And what are the benefits of that? Because my, my mm-hmm. bet is the cost differential is not, is not as great as paying SSDI and Medicare, Medicaid for somebody who could otherwise be employed. And so if, if we can, as researchers, try to kind of tear down the presumptions of the policies and the medical model, maybe we can convince mm-hmm. them to kind of break down some of these funding silos and, and, and provide what a person needs to meet their actual goals as opposed to what they need to meet the medical goal or the vocational goal or the community living or educational goal. Absolutely. We'll definitely come back to the policy Mm -hmm. side of research. I really want to talk further about it, but there was one great thing you mentioned about, you know, the medical model is that oftentimes it kind of has the standard of acceptance uh, of the research that's done on pharmaceutical, which is ends up being a lot more rigorous and the population is just larger and it's not something that we often deal with when we do research in assistive tech and rehab engineering because oftentimes it's either the populations are very small or, you know, the participation is very low. This is something that I 
it always comes up during our discussion with researchers during our episodes is that it's it's not just uh, the population so small as the financial burdens that are sometimes on the person with a disability to even participate in you know some kind of a study is so much greater and it's not something that oftentimes is accounted for when we get research grants, right? So uh, that's a rough thing. So we end up having smaller user populations. And uh, one of the points I noticed in the guidelines were the mixed integrated research methodologies um, that recognize personalized approach to interventions. You mentioned kind of for one of them, one of the approaches being kind of looking at, you know, this uh, one person studies and combining them all and kind of getting the effect of that. Um, Are there any other models, uh, other ways for us to kind of generalize it to maybe other populations or as you mentioned, you know, to kind of convince the medical field that uh, there's a lot of value in that, even if we had, you know, an N of five <laughs> people <laughs> that, you know, sometimes even editors right. get very, like, journal editors get upset about. Um, N of five yeah, studies. I, I, I think it's... <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's, it's, it's very predominant in, in our research fields because of all these, uh, you know, different... Uh, kind of like the givens of uh, doing research in, in those areas. But yeah, what, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> Ooh, um, so part of the problem, in, I think, is that the, pharma- the pharmaceutical in- industry is a nationwide reach, right? They do mm-hmm. pharmaceutical studies that are multi-center studies across the country, the gen- looking at the general population. Okay. Um, to do that... To get the population size that they get, um, to look at the distribution of a specific disability or a specific functional limitation across the population and say we can get a population size that is similar is, is a ridiculous thing to expect on their part. Um, and so I think that, that, that we have to kind of take a look at okay, for this particular issue, for pressure sore prevention, you know, we should group everyone who has mobility limitations and the ability to stand up independently and sensation problems across all diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that even gets to the size that they expect. Not to mention that there mm-hmm. are also issues with um, doing a double-blind randomized control p- trial which is the gold standard, um, when you're talking yeah. about a device you can see rather than, I mean, there's no placebo for the device you see as opposed to, you know, the wheelchair, the, the, the pill you swallow. Um, we can't mm-hmm. make up a second wheelchair that doesn't do what this one does. Do you know what I'm saying? So it, it, there is a, yeah. there is a large barrier there. And I, if I knew the answer to that question, then I, um, <laughs> Good. Wow. That would be like winning the lottery, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I just think that, you know, meta-analyses of data that, that look at similar function as opposed to diagnoses um, that look at um, the desired outcome instead of the barrier, those, I think, are the things we have mm-hmm. to convince, convince 
the government, the funding agency, the CMS, the third-party pay system, um, is appropriate. Unless we want to revamp the third-party pay system. I don't see that happening anytime soon. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately. Or fortunately, depending on how you look at that. That's a double-edged sword. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, One of the last points of that first part of the guidelines was performance standards for AT. And I think this is a big one um, for all of us doing research in in AT that want to see things being translated into the real world. I know there there are certain ISOs for, for example, prosthetic legs, something that I've dealt with, but there are not enough. Like this is something I've heard over and over again. There are not enough. We end up kind of clumping um, everything that's not even like a prosthetic leg, for example, under one ISO that exists for prosthetic legs, but this is just kind of like some very similar technology. How do we make safety standards keep up with the tech development? Because, I mean, there's a rapid rate of development going on, but safety standards are obviously very slow to develop, and I actually don't even know what the pathways to to get an ISO developed. Um, how yeah, how do so we make it happen? <laughs> how do we make it happen? So in the United States, the pathway is actually um, through Resna. Resna is the technical. Oh wow, I can't remember what that acronym stands for. It's the tag for the American National Standards Institute, which is America's one of mm-hmm. America's. Um, uh, uh, ISO, wow, um, mm-hmm. entities. Um, so we, <laughs> so I'm going to use uh, wheelchair securement and occupant restraint systems because it's actually involved in the safety standards mm-hmm. around that. Um, you get a group of people together who say, here's what the actual safety goal is. Um, and Here's, here's a way to test for it. So in this particular case, you look at, okay, a wheelchair being used as a vehicle seat in a, in a public transit system. You want to make sure that the person in the wheelchair has the same level of protection as anybody else, or maybe depending on what you're looking at, a better level of protection because their condition mm-hmm. is, is not the same as the typical American, uh, typical human body. Um, they may have, um, brittle bones, for example, or other issues that would make mm-hmm. them more susceptible to injury in that environment. And you say, okay, the outcome is that this person should remain in their wheelchair. Their wheelchair should not deteriorate and it shouldn't move more than a certain distance. And then you look at, mm-hmm. well, how do they test for that in vehicles, for vehicle seats that belong in the vehicle? Mm-hmm. How can we write a test that is repeatable and reliable and then show that this test is repeatable and reliable no matter who does it. So in the case of uh, wheelchair securement and occupant restraint systems, there are pull tests to make sure that certain components don't fail and crash tests to make sure that they don't Mm -hmm. 
that the wheelchair is contained in a certain location and that the occupant restraint holds the occupant in the wheelchair. And then there's a whole other standard about wheelchairs that are used in transport vehicles and what the wheelchair itself has to sustain. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, it it is a body of work that takes external funding, takes a lot mm-hmm. of individuals with you know, dedica- dedicated time to see these research projects through and, and then gets applied first at the ANSI level. And then the ANSI and the ISO tend to work together to try and harmonize the standards so that they say approximately the same thing. Keeping in mind that mm-hmm. ISO takes into account all other, you know, cultures and environments and what happens mm-hmm. in those cultures and environments. Awesome. Uh, how, do you know how long does it take for between that kind of like the initial moment <laughs> yes. to actually implementing it? So I know that there is a clock that ticks. Once you say you're going to develop this standard officially, you have a certain mm-hmm. time period under which you have to get a draft standard in place. I believe, but don't quote me, although this is a podcast, so you're going to quote me, <laughs> it, that it's a five-year clock Okay, before the standard okay. is written. And then within that standard, you say, here's an implementation period. So then you have to look at, mm-hmm. people have to be able to get their technology that they're developing tested and out there and available to people. So then there's that delay that happens with that. And that I think is usually another three to five years before that gets out there. Um, And then you have to keep in mind that all of these standards are compliance standards, which means nobody is saying you absolutely have to do this, but if you do it, you get bragging rights to say, hey, my wheelchair okay. is crashworthy, right? And so people would then have greater reason to buy that wheelchair. So it gets to be this move that the market makes because somebody has done it, which is why you have to have manufacturers, generally speaking, involved in the standards development because they can sit back and say, mm-hmm. okay, if you if you require this test and this is what it costs and, and this is what we have to do for every single model of wheelchair that's out there, this is what it's going to cost the manufacturer. And it's going to drive our cost up. And then you look at what we just discussed. CMS may not turn around and say, we're going to cover that cost by increasing the amount that we're going to reimburse the manufacturer for the device. So the market is very strange in that regard. I see. When a new standard comes out, uh, so you said it's not a requirement, right? It's just kind of like, it's a bonus of bragging rights for your company. Do do companies that already have some technology that haven't been uh, tested up to these new performance standards, do they ever kind of go back and retest that technology? Have you seen that happen? I have seen that happen. If they don't have to redesign their wheelchair to make it crashworthy, they won't. Because because strengthening the frame of a wheelchair can also do things like changing the weight of the frame, which if you're self-propelling can be problematic. Um, And so if Mm -hmm. if they don't have to change anything in that wheelchair meets crash standards, they're going to go for that. 
right? Um, okay. So I have seen that happen in that in that instance that we're discussing. I can't speak to other standards and what what's had what they've had to do. Absolutely, there was one thing that came up to my mind when you mentioned, you know, don't quote me on it, but about five <laughs> years is kind of like your <laughs> your ticking clock. Um, when it comes to per perhaps when it comes to you know mobility technology, at least like the wheelchairs that have been around for a long time, perhaps this this time frame is not enough to see kind of a giant leap in tech development. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about other technologies that are especially um, anything that has to do with AI, mm -hmm. I feel like that's a five year, <laughs> a you know, like time. looking back five yeah. years ago, it's a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, I... I almost, you know, <laughs> that that's that's great that there that uh, there is a pathway to to do this kind of like to create these standards. But um, I wonder if certain technologies almost will have to have a different, almost a different kind of timeline, you know, mm -hmm. to get those standards out, um, just because of how rapid the changes are in that regard. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would think so. Um, but I guess the other thing is if the, if the group of people have, has decided that this is what the safety outcome is, then you can write mm -hmm. a standard around achieving a safety outcome that isn't restrictive in the way the technology gets developed. So if the, as long as the technology continues to meet that safety outcome, it continues to meet mm -hmm. the standard. Um, or that performance outcome in the case of things like uh, pressure leaving wheelchair cushions and what they have to do to distribute pressure or posture wheelchair cushions and what they have to do to contain movement. Um, those are also mm -hmm. slow moving technologies, but, but for the quicker ones, if you say this is the performance metric, as long as you meet it, we don't care how you design around it, then maybe that's okay. But I do know also they do go back mm -hmm. and have to review these standards and, and refine them um, periodically. But I, I don't recall the period under which they have to go back and review Absolutely. them. Okay. Yeah. Um, great. Uh, so as you mentioned, the second part of the residence guidelines is about the what, the, the what, the kind of the technology. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go into listing all of it because there's uh -huh. a lot, a lot. Um, <laughs> of things that you guys kind of try to predict in 2014. Um, my thought is, looking back at it, uh, so 10 years mm -hmm. past, which ones did you miss? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think one of the things we missed in 2014 is that all UGCOM would be on your cell phone by the time you know, five, 10 years went by. Um, that's one of them. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at what we put down for augmentative communications and thinking, well, yeah, those are good, you know, establishing the effectiveness of the intervention and best practices and we did say best practices in applying mobile devices, but what, what, and then, and here's the thing, the policy always kicks in. Um, what happens is that, the the third party pay model says, well, we'll buy you the AAC, but we're not going to buy you the mobile device. 
we're not going to buy you the tablet. Um, and so we have manufacturers who provide a tablet with everything else disabled, and the only thing on it is an AAC software. And and you sit there and say, but in the long run, isn't it better for the person to have the full functionality of the tablet and being able to interface with it through their AAC? Um, yeah. So I think we missed that. We kind of touched on it a little bit, but we definitely missed that. Um, <laughs> what else? What else is in here? You know, there's emergency preparedness listed, and I think that there's a lot of good things here. I know what research has looked at instead of preparedness is communication and making communi- <laughs> emergency communication accessible to those with sensory uh, disabilities. Um, if you think about the wireless emergency alert that you get to your phone and, and, and how do you, how do you make the phone signal in a way that regardless of your sensory function, you notice that one of those is coming in, um, and can actually Mm -hmm. get the information you need out of that message. Um, so I think it's great that there's research done that we didn't predict that needed to be done. Um, (laughs) what else did we miss? There's one thing I didn't see on it. And I mean, Uh it wasn't kind of like the, the big hot topic mm-hmm. yet at that point and it's just the the whole field of AI right mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel yeah. like that has a really uh, we're we're seeing uh, AI models really kind of getting into every single aspect of our life um, mm-hmm. every uh, every side of research I've definitely been using machine learnings here and there. Uh And I think there is values to that. So Uh um, that was one where I was like, hmm, you know, I don't see it. And it's like, oh, it's 2014. We're still, you know, not at that point of talking about it yet. I I I did enjoy seeing like functional electrical stimulation on Uh it um, Uh because there's been, I feel like there's been a really big jump now. um, And I had two people that do spinal non-invasive spinal stimulation uh-huh. uh, for uh, it's for kids with cerebral palsy, some uh-huh. for spi- uh, spinal cord injury, uh-huh. stroke, and the amount of research that has come out in that aspect has been really tremendous. Uh-huh. I agree. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, all in all, I think we did a fairly good job at predicting the future. Um, but I, I think we we didn't really know, you know, how quickly things were going to change. I'm looking at the transportation one, and we're saying drive-by-wire cars and driverless cars here. And I think we completely skipped as a society drive-by-wire cars. Um, <laughs> and that's okay. Um, I don't think we've made any progress as a society in efficient technologies for boarding and leaving an airplane. If anything, mm-hmm. I think that's getting worse. Quite frankly, that's just me, because um, those 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 aisles keep getting narrower, and I can't imagine personally being on one of those. I don't know if you've ever seen the chair that they take people who need uh, to use a wheelchair down the aisle of an aircraft in, mm-hmm. but it's tiny. It would scare the bejesus mm-hmm. out of me to be secured on one of those, and I would constantly live in fear of being dropped. Um, so you just. I don't know. <laughs> you look at these things and think some of them we've made strides in and others have fallen by the wayside. And I wish I had a, I wish I had machine learning and predictive analytics to explain to me why 
the ones that haven't moved forward haven't moved forward. Maybe that's what I should go ask ChatGPT. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I, there is one thing I'm always kind of fascinated by when it comes to the policy and advocacy part of our work um, in uh-huh. when it comes to research for uh, individuals with disabilities. Coming from an engineering side, <laughs> how does one? do research in something as, at least from my first perspective, you know, far removed from numbers. But as you gave an example, I think earlier on, there are numbers that can be, um, you know, shown and analyzed. Um, Like, for example, as you mentioned, that example of, you know, uh, what are the costs of uh, either getting an individual with disability back to work versus providing um, uh, some kind of a part-time or full-time assistant to them. Can you talk more about it? Because it's it's a fascinating side of uh, research, but just wrapping around, wrapping my mind around doing research in that is uh, something I'd love to to do more. (laughs) So... um... I think there are a couple ways to go about it. And one is um, to do research. So, I, I've, And I've been involved in it from a couple of different perspectives. The first one is uh, within the wireless world, wireless technology world, um, looking at how how people with disabilities notice the incoming wireless signal. Um, so we did a study on that. You know, we sent a device, actually, is it sitting on my desk? We sent a device that was about the size and shape of a cell phone out with people. And this thing, and I'm probably not going to be able to turn it on for you right now, the battery's probably dead, would make a variety of different sounds, had a variety of different lighting patterns that went with it, had a variety of different, variety of different vibration patterns that went with it. We gave mm-hmm. it to people for a period of three weeks, and over those three weeks only during daylight hours, we sent them signals and we recorded how long it took them to notice the signal and turn it off. Okay. And we, we used the information that we got to turn around to the FCC and FEMA and inform them about the results of the research in a way that said in the future, we would recommend that wireless devices have the following capabilities to make wireless emergency alerts mm-hmm. accessible to people with disabilities. Now, it's up to them to decide that they're going to follow that regulation or follow that recommendation. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they have and sometimes they haven't. So there's that kind of preemptory piece um, where you say, as you're creating policies about what these devices have to do out in the real world, consider these things. Mm-hmm. In in the case that I was talking about, about research that, that we're about to do, that's the case where we have a policy that we look at and think there's a barrier. So right now, mm-hmm. the medical model only provides what you need in the home. Mm-hmm. For an extra $300 for someone who is a margin, well, that's not a good example. That's not a good number. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if, if you had somebody who who is a marginal propeller, 
of a manual wheelchair. They could propel enough mm-hmm. to get around their home, but not to go down the street to get on a public transit vehicle, go to work and propel around their employment thing. But if you could get them, mm-hmm. you know, um, propulsion assistance hubs, I can't remember what those are actually called from the market, like what the name of them is on the market. If you could get them those, those propulsion assistance hubs for what is a relatively low cost and they could be employed, at full-time levels, then you're no longer paying SSDI to them. You're no longer yeah. paying Medicare, Medicaid, and they're having a much broader, much richer experience because they're employed and meeting other people and, and having more autonomy over their life. Why are we stuck in the model where we only provide what's in their home? And if I can provide that information, mm-hmm. will that change policy? I think that's a uh, that's a slow train, but if I could just nudge it that direction mm-hmm. a little bit. So there's there's the research that is, hey, if you're making policy, make it this way. And then there's the research mm-hmm. that you've made this policy. Now let's look at the impact of it. Does that make sense? I see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when it comes to doing policy-related research, did you ever find yourself... Did you have experience of actually interacting with policymakers, <laughs> with uh, politicians, with, uh, I don't know, folks in Washington? How do we, um, as researchers, how do we kind of get that foot in the uh, policymaking world to have a say about yeah, that that's- what we do matters and the, the outcomes of that are important? That's, um, that's hard. So there are, you know, congressmen who, um, our, our Resna's government affairs committee will go talk to about, Hey, Center for Medicaid services really ought to cover standing wheelchairs or really ought Mm -hmm. to cover, um, and policies have been changed that way. Um, a lot of that is based on what the research says the outcomes are. Um, and Resna has a contingent of people who write white papers that are meta-analyses, meta-analyses rather, of, of the existing literature that says, here's what the existing literature says. And based on this, here are the advantages and disadvantages. And you can take that to, um, to Congress and to the Senate and say, your individual representative and say, um, here's what we think you ought to do around this particular issue. Um, the flip side though, is that, um, the regulations are administered by other agencies like CMS and the FCC. And so when you see those folks push out a notice of proposed rulemaking, um, which they're required to do when they change their rules or add rules. And you have information that could benefit that notice. You make public comment on it. Um, and mm-hmm. that was the mechanism that, that we used with the wireless emergency communications. Mm-hmm. We monitored what the FCC was putting out in the federal register about their notices and, and replied to them and said, here's what we know based mm-hmm. on the research we've done. Um, it, 
you can also do what's called ex parte communication, where you you have research that's related to a specific group and you essentially write them a letter that spells out the results of the mm-hmm. research and why you think they need yeah. to change their policy. But I think when they're searching for commentary, that's the that's the time they're most open to hearing and most open to changing. When they go out and say, we're, we're going to change this, what are your thoughts? That's the time I think that you get those people the best. I see. Um, I'm really glad to hear that uh, there are organizations like Resna that do go out and try to have these conversations with uh, congressmen. I'm glad there are conversations that are being had. I mean, I wish we had more of those. I'm, um, I think a last question uh, before we wrap it up, uh, this discussion uh, is just kind of looking ahead. Uh, what do you What are you personally (laughs) most excited about in the future of uh, rehab engineering and assistive technology research? Um, So my program of research right now, I guess this must be what mostly excites me, is um, looking at using um, machine learning algorithms to take service data sets from public agencies that include outcomes. So this technology was provided in an improved function. This technology was provided and the person was satisfied with it. And Mm -hmm. use it to predict what technology should be provided to the next person who comes with a similar set of variables, whatever those variables happen to be. Um, And I think that the reason that excites me is I've seen people do decision trees if this, then that, and we ask Mm -hmm. you this question and yada, yada. Um, But what those decision trees aren't good at is if the technology changes, you have to go back and rebuild the tree. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you continue to get the data back into the model, so the model refines Mm -hmm. itself, then theoretically, we'll see, I don't know yet. Theoretically, the model will refine itself and start incorporating the new technology without any intervention from the part of the person. That would be cool. (laughs) That would be so cool, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling I know what's going to be added on the what of the next edition of Resna's guidelines. (laughs) It's a consensus document. (laughs) I just go back and say, it's a consensus document, and I I don't drive it. Well, um, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Maureen. Thanks so much for your time. This episode was powered by Create the Center for Research and Education on Accessible Technology and Experiences at the University of Washington, and RESNA, the Rehabilitation Engineering and Assistive Technology Society of North America. Thanks for listening to Gears of Progress. I hope you enjoyed learning more about ResNAS guidelines and priorities for assistive tech and rehab engineering research. As usual, please don't forget to show some love for this podcast by rating it on your favorite platform and stay tuned for the next episode.